You're not going to need your Bibles open because I'm going to take you through so many scriptures, all through the Gospels. And I don't think you're going to be able to keep up. And what I really want to encourage you to do in this message is listen more than anything else. See, we're in the Beautiful Feet series, and so far, and I'll explain this, the first three messages have been exhortive. They've been exhortation. They've been, we need to come out of this message doing something, responding to it. This one is exhortive as well, but it's more reflective. And what I want you to do is I want you just to see how clearly, how powerfully, and how beautifully God's love is for us. So I'm going to explain to you what happened the final 15 hours of the life of Jesus Christ before he died. And I'm going to walk you through that. So I really invite you to listen. They're in the upper room. They had just celebrated their fast Passover feast. And when they had sung a hymn, Mark 14 says, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It was late Thursday evening. Jesus and his disciples, they leave the upper room. They likely walk through the city of Jerusalem, coming through the southern end of the Temple Mount. And even though it was late, Jerusalem would have been full of excitement. Oil lamps would have been burning in the windows. Families staying up late to tell the stories of God's care for his people. How he freed his people from Egypt. And Jesus almost certainly led them out of the city wall through the Shushan Gate. He crossed the Kidron Brook with his disciples. They walked up the slope of the Mount of Olives to a garden called Gethsemane. It's about a three-quarters of a mile walk from where that upper room is believed to be, all the way to Gethsemane. Matthew, Mark both record that. On the way, Jesus warns the disciples. This is while they're walking. He warns them of their imminent desertion. That's where Peter began to argue with him. I'll never leave you. But they walked to the two and a half mile long ridge. It's called the Mount of Olives. It's covered, obviously, with olive trees. And they walked to the lower slopes where there's a garden called Gethsemane. And that word Gethsemane means oil press. See, olive oil was used worldwide, actually, at that time. It was used, certainly, in the Jewish economy for trading and for cosmetics, ladies. They made cosmetics out of olive oil, cooking, fuel for their lamps, medicine. But olive oil had another purpose. It was used for the preparation for the Jewish sacrifices, their offerings. In fact, Leviticus 2 says, I'll read a portion of it, when someone brings a grain offering to the Lord, he is to pour oil on it. That oil that you are to pour on it was olive oil. So here we are on this Thursday evening, it's nearing midnight, and Jesus took Peter, James, and John, he leaves the other disciples, he takes those three along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus, as you know, I'm sure, was not given to exaggeration. He was deeply depressed. You know what that word, those two words mean in the Greek language? It's often translated 
terrified surprise. Can you imagine our Lord and Savior feeling a terrified surprise to the point where his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow? See, he knew what was coming. And when he looked into that cup that was filled, I hope you hear this, filled with his Father's wrath over our sins, knowing that he had to drink what was abhorrent to him, something that he had never tasted, he was horrified. In fact, Luke tells us in his gospel that he fell to his knees. Matthew writes that he fell to his face. In fact, Luke 22, 44 says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's an actual medical condition. It's called hematridosis. It's very rare. It comes from extreme stress or shock, and what happens in your body with this stress is that your capillaries burst and blood leaks into your sweat pores. I'll read to you a a portion of a lecture by Dr. Zugabi. He writes this, The presence of profound fear accounted for a significant number of reported cases, including six cases in men who were condemned to execution. One case occurring during the London Blitz and another in a fear of a storm while sailing. Your capillaries burst from fear and stress. Meanwhile, three times he goes back to Peter, James, and John, and he finds them asleep. And Luke, by the way, gives us a reason for it. If you've ever been through something that is so incredibly sorrowful in your life, and you have this incredible drowsiness, this is your body's body's attempt to try to cope with this. Luke writes, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep. Why? exhausted from sorrow. See, they were emotionally overwhelmed. They finally realized that Jesus was going to die and their strength gave in and gave out to sleep. And the third time Jesus approached them sleeping, he finally said, it is time, and a mob found them into the garden. They came, led by the betrayer, Judas, who greets him with a kiss of betrayer, betrayal. John 18 says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. Now I want you to listen to the language. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Now I'm going to explain that in a moment, but you need to get the map of this. The disciples flee, just like Jesus said that they would. They desert him. And they bound him, they bound him, and they took him to Annas. Why did they take him to Annas? Well, like in traditional homes in that first century in the Jewish city of Jerusalem, they likely shared a courtyard, Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas. Very typical in that day. But here's what's strange. Caiaphas is the high priest, not Annas. But his father-in-law holds the true power. As he was the first one to interrogate Jesus. He was the former high priest of the Jewish people. See, he was unable to bait Jesus into saying anything incriminating. Marking the first of seven illegal trials that night. All of them broke 
Jewish law. And meanwhile, while he was interrogating Jesus, it gave time for the Jewish Sanhedrin to gather, which is made up of 24 chief priests, including the heads of each of the 24 divisions of priests. It also had 46 others chosen among the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then the 71st person being the high priest Caiaphas. So 71 men gather at night for an illegal trial. Immensely wealthy, powerful men. This gives you a clue as to why they hated Jesus so much, in part, in large part, because he kept threatening their income. He kept cleaning out twice the temple. He forbid money changers and animal stalls from the court of Gentiles. He shooed them out. He whipped them out the first time, and they hated him for it. They're mostly corrupt men, manipulative, greedy. The high priest and the 24 ruling priests were Sadducees. You know what the Sadducees believed? They believed that all of the supernatural stories of God in the Old Testament were bogus. They didn't believe that any of them were true. They reinterpreted the entire Hebrew scriptures and took out all of the supernatural They come in, they enter, they take their seats in a semi-circle on a raised platform, and Jesus is standing bound below them. You see, Jewish trials had legal guidelines. The first one being that they've got to be conducted publicly in the daytime. They can never be conducted, conducted at night. And if you're going to get a conviction, then you've got to have two credible witnesses. And if the witnesses were ever found to be false, then those witnesses were to be stoned to death. Among other trial rules, sentencing was never to be pronounced until a full day of fasting was observed. Never on the eve of a Passover or Sabbath. Nor could it be conducted in the home of a high priest. They broke every single one of these and more. Now you might be at this point, let me take a very brief time out. You might already be a little frustrated because you're trying to write down these notes. You're never going to keep up. I'm going to put these notes on the website. You'll be able to find them probably by Tuesday if you want to get access to them. But back to this illegal trial, their laws were entirely broken just to try to convict and condemn Jesus. Meanwhile, out in the courtyard, next to a bonfire, is Peter. He's got a view of everything going on in that illegal trial. And finally, he is questioned by a servant girl who heard his Galilean accent and said, Aren't you one of his disciples? Now, interestingly, there was a 12-year study in Palestine that confirmed that roosters regularly crow for 3 to 5 minutes at 12.30 a.m., 1.30 a.m., and 2.30 a.m. 12-year study to find that information. So it gives you some sort of idea when this moment took place that Peter, for the third time, Denied Jesus, denied knowing Jesus. It was going to happen before the second crowing, before 1.30 a.m. Peter denies knowing Jesus. And when he did, Jesus, in that moment of the rooster crowing, turned and looked out 
the doors and the windows which were open of Caiaphas's home and looked straight at Peter. It says in Luke twenty two sixty one, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Peter, seeing the look of his Lord and Savior, knowing the severity of his betrayal and his denial, stricken with remorse, fled into the night, weeping under cover of darkness. The Sanhedrin, with their illegal conviction of blasphemy, began to mock Jesus, and they began to beat Jesus. And then they filed out one at a time, and the soldiers continued what they had done. Mark 14 says they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. At the site in Jerusalem that is traditionally believed to be the house of Caiaphas, they've discovered a small, ancient dungeon in the ground, large enough for one person to be lowered into it, likely where Jesus was placed until daybreak. And Luke 22 tells us at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, that's the Sanhedrin, both the chief priests and teachers of the law met together, and Jesus was led before them. Do you see what they're doing? They broke every possible Jewish law, had an, an incredibly and totally illegal trial. But to cover their tracks, what they do is they come back at daybreak when they could have had the trial, at least in daylight, between 5.30 and 6 a.m. And they come back and they reconvene as a Sanhedrin. And there they formalize their sentence of death. But they had to get the consent of the Roman governor to actually put Jesus to death. And the problem was that their conviction of blasphemy wasn't going to be enough to secure Rome's approval of execution. So instead, they accused Jesus of conspiracy. Pilate, the Roman governor, who normally lived in Caesarea, 65, 75 miles northwest of Jerusalem, an idyllic location along the Mediterranean Sea, always came into the city of Jerusalem during their holy festivals to make sure that there was order. So Pilate was in his residence in Jerusalem. And ancient sources suggest, now this is interesting, you may not know this, this is very, very, actually very important for you to understand this. There's ancient Jewish sources that suggest that the day for the northern Jewish people, that would be from Galilee and the surrounding areas, that's where Jesus was from, their day started at sunrise and ended the following sunrise. Morning to morning, that's how they reckoned their day. It began at daybreak, it ended in the following daybreak. But the southern Jews, that would be most of the Sanhedrin, or at least all of the chief priests, their day started at sundown, and it spanned 24 hours to end at sundown. So being Galilean, Jesus and his disciples would have viewed the Passover day as starting at sunrise on Thursday. Now this is very important. And it ended Friday morning. So they would have celebrated eating the Passover meal Thursday evening. But all of these corrupt Jewish priests 
Their day was about to begin. In fact, it began Thursday evening at sunset. It's going to end Friday evening at sunset, meaning that while Jesus had already celebrated the Passover, they're about to. And it now begins to help you understand from John 18, 28, why the southern Jews, the chief priests, would not enter Pilate's home because they were going to be celebrating the Passover. For a Jewish person to enter into a Gentile home, they believed it rendered them ceremonially unclean, which would have forbade them to go into the temple to sacrifice their Passover lamb. Now you understand why the chief priests could not enter Pilate's home on Friday. They get there and they explained their baseless charges and Pilate wanted nothing to do with them. He knew it was trumped up. So he sent him to Herod. He sent Jesus to Herod. He's a corrupt puppet king of Rome. Herod's the man that is the king of the Jews under the Roman power, Roman control. He's the one that put John the Baptist to death. He had him beheaded. And Luke 23, 11 tells us that he wanted, Herod did, Jesus to demonstrate his power. But Jesus wouldn't. He wouldn't even speak to Herod. So finally, in his fruitless efforts, he has his soldiers mock Jesus, ridicule Jesus. They put a purple robe on Jesus, and they send him back to Pilate. He gets back to Pilate, and again, Pilate can find nothing wrong with him. He, said, he tried to set Jesus free, John says. But the Jews kept shouting. Now, I want you to hear this. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, why did they have so much power over Pilate? Pilate had been ruling in Judea for about four years. He already had, and already his Roman authorities were wondering back in the emperor's court how fit Pilate was really for that position. He'd been messing up left and right, creating riots. At the very beginning of his rule in Jerusalem, he wanted to cow the Jews under the Roman rule. So he had his army carry standards bearing Caesar's image into Jerusalem. And the Jews defending the second commandment that God had given adamantly believed images were idolatrous. They rioted against Pilate. Threatened with beheading, if they would not desist, many of the Jews, they just simply fell to the ground, bared their necks. I'd rather be beheaded, they said, rather than you violate our city with those flags and standards. Pilate was forced to yield to avoid the massacre, and the standards were removed. By this point in Pilate's career, he hated the Jews, but he was in a precarious political condition with Rome. They had, he had received a letter from the Caesar that told him if he did that again, he would be put to death, brought back to Rome and put to death. He was frightened. So when the Jews shouted, you are no friend of Caesar, that was a threat that they're going to write a letter to Caesar and tell him what Pilate is doing. And they're going to riot. So hoping to satisfy the Jews, yet avoid the death penalty, here's what he does. He orders that Jesus should be flogged. 
You see, only men were allowed to be flogged. And it was always done naked and publicly. I want you to imagine, as horrible as this is, and as painful as the rest of this message is going to be, I want you to imagine our Lord and Savior enduring this. He knew what he was going to endure. He knew from before he created this world what he was going to face. If you want to see the extent of God's love for you, now I want you to look at me for a moment. Look, look away from that slide for just a moment. I want you to look at me for a moment. I want you to hear this. Let these words get into your heart for a moment. Some of you don't understand God's love. I know you've heard countless sermons on it. And I know people have told you over and over God's love is more than you will ever know. But for some of you, it's not yet penetrated your heart. Enough to where you've cried out for your salvation, but not enough to where you can be freed from shame and guilt in your past. In fact, I had somebody recently, and this is not uncommon, tell me that they've prayed to be saved a thousand times. You don't understand God's love. You don't yet get it. This message is intended to get it down into your heart a little bit more. Imagine the horror of Jesus being flogged. A Roman scourge was a long handle with several strands of leather. It had rocks and pieces of glass and it had metal and bone all tied into the ends of these leather strands. It actually was pretty short. If you're thinking the movie Zorro and a long whip, you're not understanding the, scour the scourge. It was very short. It had a long handle on it. It was meant to deliver maximum torque on those leather strands. And the hands would be tied high above the head to a vertical post. Why? So that the skin of the back and the buttocks would be completely taut. They wanted to deliver pain. The diagonal swings, there would be one soldier on the right, another on the left. They would alternate, and those diagonal swings would curl the leather strands around the back into the front of your body, and they would pull it sideways, not let it come back out easily. They would pull it sideways, cutting trails of open flesh until the muscles underneath were laid bare. Now listen, I'm not making this up. This isn't to try to create maximum effect for you. This is just the reality of what a scourging was. It was not, in fact, uncommon for scourging to kill the victim. It often fatally penetrated the kidneys. And after they were finished, 39 lashes. They believed the Jewish people, the Roman people rather, that 40 lashes would kill somebody. So they did 40 minus 1. So after 30 lashes, they counted them out. They unshackled his hands, his wrists from that post. They stood him back up and they put that purple robe that Herod had given him to mock him. They put it back on his bleeding, oozing flesh. And then they took a crown of thorns. The average length of those thorns was one, half, one and a half to two inches long. And they jammed that on his head and they took a stick that was a mock scepter of a king and they hit him over the head with that crown of thorns on it and then they put that stick in his hands and made him carry it. And they brought him back to Pilate. 
But still, Matthew said in chapter 27, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And the Jewish chief priests shouted out all the more, let his blood be on us and on our children. And with that, Pilate released Jesus to a whole company of soldiers to be crucified. That would be 600 Roman soldiers. The Romans made sure that crucifixion occurred where everyone could see it. It was either on the side of a busy road or up on a hill. In this case, it was up on a hill. And while the Persians actually invented crucifixion, the Romans were the ones that perfected it. The word crucified, or excruciate rather, the word excruciate is Latin. Ex means from, cruciate means the cross. So crucifixion is excruciating from the cross. It is pain unparalleled. And it was designed to cause the, um, the maximum amount of lingering pain possible, often taking days to kill the victim. The condemned had to carry his own cross, but with the severity of Jesus' suffering, it seems that he collapsed on the way. So Simon the Cyrene, who was an innocent bystander coming in to the city, was forced to carry the cross the rest of the way. Well, what did the cross look like? It was actually made of two parts. You had the vertical and you had the horizontal beams. Christ was made, as every crucified victim, to carry the horizontal one. It was called the patibulum. It weighed between 75 and 125 pounds. And can you imagine him carrying this, further scraping the already lacerated wounds on his back? When he got to the site, he was, by Roman law, offered a mixture of wine and myrrh. It would be equivalent to about three Advil. It's a mild analgesic. He refused to drink it. The patibulum was laid down. That's the horizontal beam. It was laid down on the ground, and Jesus was thrown down on it where they took two nails, one for each wrist. They know that the hand cannot support, the bones in the hand cannot support a person's weight. It was through the wrist, a nail seven inches long. Again, maximum pain was intended as the spikes severed two nerves, the ulnar and the median nerve. In fact, if someone were to grip, grip your wrist and squeeze as tightly as they could, it would curl your fingers in. And when those nerves are destroyed, you cannot open your fingers again the rest of your life. So his fingers now are in a clawed position. The patibulum was attached to the stipes, that's the upright post, and then his feet one over the other, nailed with one nail, severing the latter, lateral and the perineal nerves. And then the entire cross lifted up with its base over a hole in a rock and then dropped into place. And often that act of dropping that cross into that hole dislocated, disjointed the shoulders. Jesus was crucified 
9 a.m. in Galilean time. That's the third hour. Remember, Galileans, their day began at daybreak. And with the body hanging on the cross and the pectoral muscles, they're paralyzed, the intercostal muscles unable to act. Listen, here's what it's like to breathe as a crucified victim. You can inhale, you can breathe in, but you cannot breathe out. There's no ability to exhale unless you relax those muscles. So Jesus spoke seven times from the cross, all brief statements that you can speak in one lungful of breath. And every single time, he had to pull up with his wrists, push up with his feet, just to speak what he did. Which is why there's a premium on what Jesus said from the cross. Pain every time he exhaled from pulling and pushing on those severed nerves and his wrists and his feet. Spiking waves of pain and nausea. He was mocked by nearly everyone, from the soldiers to those passing by, even the robbers that were crucified on either side of him in the beginning both mocked him. Have you ever been in pain and someone has mocked you? In fact, the priests were walking in front of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross Literally with their thumb on their nose like a little playground child doing this, wagging their fingers at him, daring him to come down off the cross and show his might. From noon until 3 p.m., darkness came over the whole land, symbolic of the wrath of God poured out upon his son for our sins. You understand that's the symbol of the darkness The son was buried in darkness to hide him from the father. Because the son is now bearing our sins. He's the sin bearer. And it's just before 3 p.m. when his cry of forsaken pain rang out. Dehydration was agonizing. Jesus cried out, I am thirsty. And when he received the drink, Jesus said... It is finished. Three words in the English, one word in the Greek. The word is tetelestai. And he says it in a tense. It's written, rather, by the gospel writers in a tense that means it is finished and it will always be finished. Now, I want you to hear that again because this is something you need to get into your mind on its way to the heart. It is finished, the work of redemption, What was necessary for sins to be taken away, it is finished and it will always be finished. It's not that you've got to put your faith in Jesus and then add into it eight sacraments. It's not that you put your faith in Jesus and then you've got to attend church. If you really want to be saved, it's not like the cross of Christ gets you 80% there and then your effort gets at the other 20%. It is thoroughly, utterly finished and it's always going to be finished. There is nothing more that God must do to save us. That word to tell us die is beautiful. It was used by artists when the very final touch was applied to their work of art. It was written across tax receipts when your final payment was paid to clear you of your debt. Priests actually 
pronounced the word to Telestai over a lamb that was pronounced unblemished and fit for sacrifice. They would say to Telestai, and that lamb would be tagged as worthy to be sacrificed. He's on the cross here. It's just mere moments from dying. It is likely as the blasts of the shofars in the temple signaling the beginning of the sacrifice of the lambs for the Passover that Jesus called out, Luke says, with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. This is our Lord. This is Jesus. Dr. Truman Davis, who has extensively studied a medical aspect of crucifixion, writes this. Carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart, which is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp small gulps of air. This would have been the final moments of Jesus' life. He died. The Jewish leaders had asked Pilate, can you please hasten their deaths on, that cr- on those crosses because the Sabbath is arriving in just a few short hours. This is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The Sabbath, this is Friday, their Jewish Sabbath begins at sundown Friday evening. It's a few hours away, so they said, please hasten their death. So soldiers were dispatched to perform what's called crucifracture, where you break the legs below the knee. They can no longer push up to exhale, and they slowly suffocate to death, actually quickly, within minutes. While they came to the first of the two criminals, they swung the hammer, they broke his legs, He was going to die in moments. They came to the second. They did the same. They came to Jesus to break his legs. And then they discovered that he was already dead. But they had to make sure. Here's a bit of an autopsy. A soldier always took a long spear that had about an 18-inch point to it. Very tapered to a fine point. And they would stick it up through the ribs, through their lungs, and into the heart. And they would pull it out, and a trained soldier could tell if the victim was dead if a mixture of blood and water came pouring out of the heart. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. He died either from cardiac rupture or cardiorespiratory failure. You want to know how much God loves you? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can I ask you to think on this for a moment? Are you worth dying for? And I would imagine a lot of you are saying to yourself, no. 
Well, you don't understand. God has never said that. Jesus never said that. He said, yes, you are worth dying for. And I will be the one that dies. This is the Savior whom we worship. Whose resurrection we're going to celebrate next Sunday. This is the one that we observe on Good Friday that died in our place for us. And nowhere in the universe can God's love be seen more clearly. This is the good news of salvation. It was obtained through the death of Jesus Christ, the innocent Son of God. And if you have never confessed, and I hope you're hearing me, if you have never confessed your sins to God, trusting Him to forgive you through Jesus' death and resurrection, I'm going to tell you what the Bible tells you. Now is the day of salvation. Why would you not entrust your soul to a God that loves you this much? For there is no other way to be saved. Cry out to Jesus, your Lord and Savior. He will hear your prayer and you will be saved. I guarantee it. Amen.